0: Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca-bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Jeffrey Rustin for a conversation about Athens' rise to prominence in classical Greece. Dr. Rustin is a professor in the Department of Classics at Cornell University based in Ithaca, and not to be confused with the legendary island of Ithaca, which was made popular as a result of Homer's epic poem, The Odyssey. Cornell University is based in the American city of Ithaca, which is in the state of New York. Dr. Rustin specializes in Greek literature, especially Athenian. He specializes in Greek historians, especially Thucydides. And he specializes in Greek drama, including comedy. He's the author of many publications over his career, including a couple books as examples. He's the editor of the book, The Birth of Comedy, Texts, Documents, and Art from Athenian Comic Competitions 486-280, to which was published by John Hopkins University Press. And he wrote a commentary on Thucydides, Thucydides, the Peloponnesian War Book 2, which was published by Cambridge University Press. Welcome to call, Jeff.
1: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: Okay, so everyone's heard of Athens, and I think there's consensus out there that it was, is a prominent city. So, and at one point a city-state. So when we, when we, uh, talk about it gaining prominence in the the region of what we would call modern day Greece. What period do most historians comfortably say Athens is now a a prominent uh, city state, if we want to use that, or a prominent uh, uh, region in in Greece? What what period? Just so we can peg it in our in our minds.
1: Right. Well, the period's actually kind of named after Athens' height of influence. It's called the classical period, usually. Okay. And by classical, it means classical Athens and Athenian literature. It's the 5th century BCE and the 4th century BCE. So from about 600 BCE to about um, 300.
0: Okay. So, and we'll probably spend some good time in that period, but let's talk... uh, Let's talk prior to that period then. Can you describe then what the lay of the land was coming up to that 600, uh, I guess coming up to the 600 BCE? What was that whole area? Again, we're using modern day, you know, modern day Greece. Um, What was it like? So if Athens wasn't prominent yet at that point, what was the lay of the land then?
1: Well, one, one thing we have to leave out for the Greeks themselves of this period is the magnificent, you know, uh, Bronze Age period, which they knew primarily as a mythological period, and they knew nothing of the the highly developed culture during the Bronze Age um, that existed in Crete and on the mainland. Um, they, that was, uh, it's quite surprising they didn't know about that, but they did know that of the myths from Homer mm. during that time, the Iliad and the Odyssey, but it's really only about 800 BCE that The history, the conscious history of the Greeks begins. And there it begins in what's called the Archaic period, which is what precedes the Classical period. And Athens is a real minor player during that period. Um, The major players are the Peloponnese and especially the cities that you probably know, like Argos and Mycenae. And not Mycenae during this period, but Argos, which was at that era. Mm -hmm. And then Sparta, of course, and Thebes. And those were the major cities, and those are the cities that figure largely in Greek myths. So the myths of uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey, but also the myths of Heracles, um, the myths of um, Oedipus, all of those are based on Thebes and the Argive-Peloponnesian region. Athens has no role to play in them at all.
0: Okay. So before 608, when sparta thebes argos um are prominent uh city states are you would athens would would you have put athens at that point in time um before 600 bce would athens be in the same category or was it not even on the the map uh you know you know metaphorically speaking
1: right it was it it was known it was a it was one of the major city states but it was not a powerful one And it was constantly under the control or in danger of being under the control of these others. But basically the city-states kept to themselves during this Mm. period. No one at this period had ambitions to rule all of Greece. They just wanted their own areas of influence. So Athens could exist, and we have a fair bit of information. We're... Even for all periods, even the early period, because of Plutarch's lives, among other things. Plutarch lived much later, but he collected information about early Athenian history. We know that there were three large families, three prominent families that kind of shared the uh, the, the domination of Athens. And we also know that there was a lot of conflict between the very rich and the very poor. Uh, things that Solon Solon was involved in. Mm-hmm. Solon is a very big figure, but we don't Know much about him except generally, uh, and, um, and 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 uh, so the, the history of Athens really begins at the end of the sixth uh, century B.C.
0: Okay, um, is there uh, is there an inflection point in your opinion, Jeff? Is there is there a point in which in a given year or or a given event that You feel most scholars would agree Athens is now the prominent um, regional player.
1: Well, it starts with Herodotus, who you've had a podcast about. Mm -hmm. Herodotus tells a lot of stories about Athens, even though he is mainly interested in the Persian War. And he dates the rise of Athens to the discovery of silver in the Athenian um, Mm -hmm. countryside of a silver mine. And he tells the story that there was a politician in the late 6th century named Themistocles who said we should not just hand out this silver to every citizen, but we should build ships with it and create a navy. Hmm. Because we're gonna have to defend ourselves and that's the best way to invest it. And, and uh, that I think many scholars would agree that that, that military and economic decision, if it's true, certainly the silver was true, um, is, is the time when Athens started to have some, some clout mm-hmm. in, in, the, in the region. Okay. Um, and then the, the other thing that happens at that time is they throw out a tyrant from one of these three families, Pisistratus. A tyrant is like a, a, like a, you know, the closest analogy these days would be Saddam Hussein or somebody like that. Uh, somebody who dominates a region and um, keeps it under control uh, with his own family, but actually holds it back from any external expansion, usually just wanting to keep control. And they threw the Pasistratus the, out. Actually, the Spartans helped do that. Um, the Athenians repaid them very poorly for that later. And after they threw him out, they adopted a new form of government, hmm. which is democracy. And that democracy is even more radical in some ways than what we think of as democracy today. So it was one of one of the men from the three families who said, all citizens will decide everything in the assembly together, and we will have no permanent leader. We will have an archon who is chosen by lot every year, a series of archons eventually, 10 of them, and we will all be reorganized into military tribes, which will mix the population up and not put it all into g- groups by geographical region. And those are the main features of democracy. Of course, it, 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 it was a very small citizen body. The women and the slaves were, of course, not members of the democracy, but it was a, a, a quite a new form of government.
0: Do scholars know what year that was created uh, uh, in Athens?
1: Scholars do, I don't. It's about six uh, roughly it's about, five. Oh, it's about five in the in the last two decades of the of the sixth century, about gee, I should know this I'm terrible on dates because they often turn out to be but maybe say five seventeen. Yeah. And the, the man is named Cleisthenes. His he's 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 one of these three major families. And he seems to have decided, Herodotus gives us a hint about this. He tells us he decided the best way to defeat his uh, opponents in the other families was to put all the people on his side, the common people. And so he decided to become a populist and introduce this form of government.
0: Okay, so who is the first person to, uh, that's known to have written about Athens? When did they? When was it, and what did they write?
1: Um, uh, well, Herodotus is a major source for Athens. He is, it wasn't his primary goal, but he tells us, he gives us a lot about Athenian history. And Herodotus wrote at the beginning of the, or, or in the, actually in the middle of the 5th century BC, but he wrote about the beginning of the classical period, early Athens and Sparta and the Persian War. Mm-hmm. So he's our major source for the beginnings of Athens. Um, we we have fragments, we have a lot of fragmentary statements about early Athens, but they tend to be more mythological than historical. Uh, to the, the, Paradoxically, if you want to learn about early Athens, the best place to go is Plutarch, who, who li- lived in the 2nd century AD. The 1st and 2nd centuries AD, you know, more than a half a millennium after this time. But he's read up on things that we don't have anymore. So Plutarch has lives of Theseus, of Solon, um, those are the major two, and and of other Athenian politicians. So um, he would be a good source. And then, oh, one other thing. <laughs> Once the democracy comes into being, we start having the Athenians writing up inscriptions. Public, they wrote inscriptions about their public decisions and honoring people and uh, religious inscriptions. And uh, one thing they have a lot around, of around Athens is marble. And so uh, marble is a very durable um, mm-hmm. writing surface. So those, those documents are still findable and readable today. And obviously there must have been other things on paper, but, uh, but the marble inscriptions are almost, Athens is almost unique in having this enormous corpus of inscriptions, mostly about public matters, not private, mm. Uh, but but, uh, that you can read about. But they're hard to interpret in many cases. They don't tell us exactly what we want to know, but um, they give us a lot of early information. But really, it's only, in, as I say, the end of the 6th century that that Athens becomes prominent.
0: Do scholars uh, have any confident sense of populations in that 6th century in places like Athens, Sparta, Thebes, Argos, do, do scholars have any sense of what the size of these um, uh, city-states were?
1: Right, they do. And I, I left out, you mentioned written sources. Mm-hmm. Um, Athens, because it became so famous later, has been the most intensely archaeologically studied site probably mm-hmm. in the world. Um, every, every square foot of Athens has been surveyed, and um, they're constantly... Finding, uh, looking, and finding new things, and that goes back beyond the sixth century. It goes mm. back into you know the tenth, ninth, eighth centuries BCE, and so uh, it that kind of archaeological evidence doesn't always produce a, an easy narrative. But it looks like there were, for example, incredibly wealthy families in Athens during this time. Uh, it looks like there were um, periods of drought. Mm. and maybe a plague or famine during this time. It looks like there were times when populations left Athens to emigrate, Mm -hmm. maybe because of political upheaval, maybe because of weather or famine. And one of the main places they went to was the coast of Turkey, Asia Minor, from Athens and other places, um, which were archaeologically very rich. And um, uh, as a matter of fact, the historian Thucydides tells us there was a paradox that early Athens was so poor that nobody wanted to invade it, and so it mm-hmm. was a relatively secure place to be. Um, and and so you could you could live in Athens without too much fear because the the countryside was not very good agriculturally, unlike the Peloponnese mm-hmm. um, or Thessaly to the north. Mm. And, um, It it really just had kind of, until they discovered the silver mines, it had clay for pottery Mm -hmm. and it had marble for um, inscriptions and for public buildings.
0: So I'm going to ask in a moment about if you believe any uh, battles or or war, any military effort um, uh, influenced Athens' rise to prominence but I wanna, I, wanna go, I wanna go back to the population item too. Uh, yeah. oh, just yeah. um, just so, so I don't forget as well. So uh, do scholars have any sense of size? And I'm, what, what I'm getting at with that question is, so you have um, powerful city-states around this time or before, before the, um, uh, this, this, uh, the 600s, like Sparta and Thebes and Argos and Athens seems like it's on the rise. Do scholars have any sense of the size of these uh, city-states in that period?
1: No, um, uh, well, they they do, they speculate quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And the the speculation ranges from relatively high, like hundreds of thousands of people, Mm -hmm. mainly during the 5th century, and maybe that's why there were emigrations, because they couldn't support that much population, to relatively low, say, a couple hundred thousand people. Um, Mm -hmm. And... um, the citizen body was very small, but probably as Athens became more prosperous, it attracted a lot of emigrants from other countries. They didn't become citizens, but they lived there and worked there, traded there, things like that. So, a recent book by uh, uh, Josiah Ober from Princeton University Press, I'm sorry, I don't have the title on the tip of my tongue, mm-hmm. has argued that Athens in the fifth century was what rivaled. Um, uh, Holland, uh, in its most prosperous period as a center of trade and population. Mm. That's a very optimistic assessment. Um, but probably that was only in, in the 5th century. So uh, a quarter of a million people is a pretty standard guess.
0: Okay, all right.
1: Somewhere at, that's putting it in the middle of the two extremes.
0: Yeah, and let's... Uh... Let's please work our way in a few moments then towards, uh, you know, if it's prominent, what does prominence mean? I'd love to hear what your thoughts about that are, because a lot of different, um, you know, facets of prominence, right? Um, but before we get there, uh, military efforts, did did any battles or wars influence Athens' rise to prominence?
1: Well, that was actually the major reason, uh, and uh, Herodotus traces that the uh, Athenians after they became democratic, you know, their, their tribes, every citizen was in the army pretty much all the time. They weren't in the army like the Spartans. They didn't do a lot of military training. But, but the tribes were basically a military structure, the ten tribes. And so they had at their disposal uh, the citizen population to go to war if they were good enough to succeed. And they also added to it this group of uh, ships, which were called triremes. They didn't invent them, but they adapted them. Triremes could have hundreds of oars in them and uh, mm-hmm. work very quickly. And they were basically floating battering rams, which could um, which could uh, sink an, an enemy ship very easily. And also, if they if their crews were well trained, and they did spend a lot of time training their crews, so they had a fairly good army and they had a very good navy by the beginning of the fifth century. And they used it. They used it to defend themselves against their neighbors. And eventually, quickly, relatively quickly, to com- conquer their neighbors, we think of the island of Aegina, you know, which is in the harbor, in the Saronic Gulf. Um, Aegina was once a major power, and Athens overwhelmed and destroyed it uh, in a series of wars and took it over. Um, the Eleusis, Uh, was a major uh, center, a religious center, but also a good population center. Athens took that over. And it wanted to go further, the town of Megara, it kept trying to take over. All the territory up to the Peloponnese, which they couldn't ever get at, they wanted to make their own on the mainland. Um, And then they got, I mentioned they had kinship ties with the Greeks of Asia Minor, that is the Greeks in Turkey and uh, greeks have greeks have off the, the the coast of turkey has been mainly a greek population for centuries and the but the persian empire had controlled it during this time and the athenians actually were lured into a revolt a very um ill-planned revolt by the um by the greeks of asia minor in which they uh fought against Turkey, against Turkey, against Persia, against the Persian Mm -hmm. Empire. Mm -hmm. And um, they actually participated in the burning of the capital of Sardis. Um, But the, the, uh, the Ionian revolt, as it's called, failed. But the Persians remembered it, and they decided to get even. And so Herodotus tells the story that they sent an expedition to reduce Athens to slavery 20 years later. And that expedition was defeated by the Athenians, surprisingly, um, at the Battle of Marathon. The Athenians went out and defeated and and repulsed the Persian force, which then returned to Persia. And that was considered Athens' greatest moment because it was Athens against the Persian Empire with no help from other Greeks at all. Um, But 10 years after that came the big expedition the Persian king uh, Xerxes decided to attack all of Greece with a huge army. Herodotus tells that story. That's his major, major story. And at that time, the Greeks either had to submit to the Persians, which a number of them did, Thebes, for example, um, or fight. And the Athenians and the Spartans actually joined forces, not willingly. Herodotus tells the story that there was a lot of ill will but eventually, they both fought together, and uh, especially under an Athenian leader, the same man uh, named Themistocles, who uh, at the Battle of Salamis, they defeated the Persian fleet, and the Persian king decided at that point to leave personally himself and not stay, and then all of Greece it was all of Greece fought together, the, except the Thebans, at the Battle of Plataea. And it, they, they, uh, they defeated the remaining Persian force. And that was kind of a miracle mm-hmm. victory. Um, and after that was over, um, the Spartans the, the Spartans and the Athenians, who had been the co-leaders of Greece, again, and Herodotus tells this story, they decided primarily to get revenge against the, the Greeks who had supported the Persians, but otherwise to return to normalcy. The Athenians decided, and this is partly in Herodotus, partly in Thucydides, they decided to leverage the situation and go on and free the Greeks of Asia Minor from the Persian Empire, which they had failed to do before. And so they collected all of the allies. The Spartans said, go ahead, you're in charge. They collected all of the allies, collected massive amounts of tributes, and now their navy could be into full play. They could use their Navy to uh, occupy all the islands and all the coast of the of the Persian Empire along Asia Minor mm-hmm. which they did for uh, until the four until the um, 430s 440s uh, mm-hmm. four, four 430s four quite successfully in other words 30 years of, of, of Athenian aggressive domination um, which You'd think would be a great glory for the Greeks, and it was. I mean, they conquered. They tried to conquer Cyprus. They came very close. They fought in Egypt. The Persians were ruling Egypt at this time. The Athenians fought there. Um, They were fighting all over. And there's a casualty list. There's a um, uh, a, an inscription that they put up every year for the listing all of the dead in the war by tribe. And in one one fragment of the casualty list says, in this year there died in. In Boeotia, in Cyprus, in Egypt, um, in, in the Peloponnese, all of these men. In other words, they were fighting everywhere. This is probably from the 450s. They were incredibly aggressive. And, um, but they were getting tribute from all the people they fought with and all the people they conquered. So during these years, Athens became, it used to be considered the great age of Athens. Now we look at it a bit more skeptically because it was in fact aggression and many of these allies were reluctant allies and, and became to be dominated by the Athenians so um, the rest of Greece if they were part of the alliance they wanted out of this they thought look the Persians have been defeated we are free in Asia Minor um, they wanted out of it and the Athenians said no and if you try to get out, we will turn you into the enemy and attack you, which they did on five or six occasions. And they, and they turned against their former allies, especially on the islands, and reduced them and made them pay even greater tribute. And the Spartans and the Thebans and the rest of Greece, which had not been part of this, became seriously alarmed at Athens' expansion and, and started to test Athenian defenses by attacking them themselves. So this time, the and this is the time when, after many many later authors talk about this as uh, a period when Athens, after gloriously defeating the Persian Empire, started fighting against each other. And they blame and and many of them blame Athens for this. Athens is Athens is the state that first attacked other Greeks after defeating the Persians, but. The, the Athenians themselves did not feel this way. They felt they were genuinely increasing the security and the prosperity of Greece, and and to some extent, in the case of the Persian Empire, they were. Um, so that that's how Athens came to prominence until the four fifties, four forties, when the Spartans finally decided to strike back, and that was that was a, a, the beginning of Thucydides' history, which is a separate war.
0: Yeah, that's the Peloponnesian
1: right. War? It's called the Peloponnesian. It was really the Athenian War because the Peloponnesians were fighting the Athenians, trying to put an end to their empire.
0: Okay. Um, so let's, let's go into uh, the actual uh, state of prominence, if, if you will, to speak about the attributes. So there's different um, types of attributes when you look at a, um, a civilization such as uh, education, Quality of life, healthcare, right? right? Um, and Athens is obviously no, known as a place where there was early philosophy, right? right. Um, can you speak more about the attributes that made it prominent? And when I'm, and I'm, I'm also curious: Is it did it? Be, it was a prominent? Did it did it gain that prominence because of its uh, size and? you know, everything that you described up to this point, or what did it have the military strength because of being so prominent in other areas and therefore eventually attracted the resources to build it? You know what I'm getting at? So I'm curious what you think if one came before the other as well.
1: Uh, it's a great paradox that that this aggressive state Um, was also a very democratic state internally and was also the most culturally flowering state of Mm -hmm. greece Mm -hmm. during this time and was especially known for open discourse internally again within athens the 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 climate was such that um there was constant debate democracy saw to it that um the decisions were made by the people and they were made by the people in assembly. And there was no chance of taking over the government because all the, all the offices were chosen by lot. And if you wanted to preside over the assembly, you had maybe one day to preside over the assembly if you happened to catch the right pebble in the allotment machine. Um, and, but also, um, th- this democracy is one aspect of it. It was, uh, we actually have, the documentation is amazing. We have Aristotle's account of the complete constitution of the d- Athenian democracy. Um, nobody ever reads it because it's too detailed mm. and long. But if you read it, you discover that they were, they were very well organized mm. and they regulated things quite thoroughly so that no one could um, be corrupt and no one could take advantage. But the only place there was a free for all was the assembly. There were no restrictions on the assembly and no politician ruled Athens. Every, everybody who was in charge of Athens did so by standing up in the assembly every single day and convincing people to do what he wanted. So even a, the, a person like Pericles, who was really in the leader of Athens for 25 years, he could have been deposed or he could have been rejected any time, any day during that period. So that's quite unusual. We don't usually associate that with an aggressive military machine. Um, the other aspect of it is that the public, um, the, 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 the public uh, festivals were primarily musical and literary, not, not so much athletic. And so at the beginning, about the time of democracy, they began the festivals for mm. choral dance, Mm-hmm. And comedy, uh, tragedy first and then comedy. And that's where we get the plays of Aeschylus, Sophocles and Euripides uh, first. And those were mythological plays. We have you know maybe 50 plays, what are we, 40, 50 plays. Um, and it's only a fraction of what they wrote, which are still very famous, I don't have to tell you. And, but they also, even though they were myths, they were very engaged in contemporary life they dealt with questions of justice. They dealt with questions of leadership. They dealt with questions of religion. What should the gods be like? Are the gods just? How do we appease the gods? Do the gods do well? If you're a, if you're at the same time when they were conquering other people in war, they would on put on plays showing the Trojan people being enslaved at the end of their war and the cruel Athenians treating them very badly. Exactly what the Athenians were doing to the people they conquered. So, There was no no punches pulled and even less so was there in comedy because the comedies we have during this period are highly satirical and full of explicit references to politicians and very much against the grain of the current um, policies. So Aristophanes was constantly an opponent of the war. Almost every one of his plays, some of them extensively mocked and criticized and tried to get an end to the war. And yet he didn't succeed because the war was evidently popular um and then also during this time we have socrates the there's the ultimate athenian philosopher there were many philosophers but socrates was an athenian citizen and socrates uh as as we see his as we see him in plato um, has no interest in the athenian empire he doesn't think politicians are very smart and he thinks they mislead the people. He doesn't even think democracy's all that good. Um, but he's a soldier. He actually fights in the war and he's almost killed twice. Um, and that, that's well known from um, from uh, the dialogues of Plato. So he fights loyally for the, Athen- for the Athenians. And then what's more, he is chosen by lot to preside over the assembly on a famous day when the assembly went crazy during the Peloponnesian War and voted to execute all of its generals because of a because of a mistake they'd made in a battle, Socrates tried to stop them on that day. Two different sources mention that. Mm-hmm. So, um, it's a it's a real paradox to envision this highly cultured society and also very self-aware and and full of you know. Uh, self-critical, at least in Socrates, self, and, and in tragedy too, and in comedy, full of self-critical discourse, um, and imagining how things can be different, with this aggressive, um, you know, two-thirds of a century uh, military power. It's the great paradox, and I think most people who study Athens simply ignore the military side of mm. it, which is a lot easier to do.
0: Is there a correlation? Do you think then between when Athens adopts a more nascent form of democracy, but Athens adopts a democracy structure, and their them becoming a high cultured cosmopolitan city? Is there a correlation around that time?
1: It's hard. It's hard to explain. Um... Uh, the, the best explanation I've seen is that the war, I mean is the, is that the, for the average citizen, the picture I'm painting of the Athenian Empire and their aggression, the average citizen would not have bought that. The average citizen would have would have known only that Athens was fighting the Persians and it was making Greece more prosperous and it was securing its own freedom. Freedom was a real buzzword during this time. And freedom did not mean and, and Thucydides even chose this freedom did not mean that you were not a slave. Freedom meant that you determined your own political decisions. And so Thucydides even has a, a very odd um, expression. He says they defeated their former allies, the they, um, they, Some of the people, they sold into bondage after they defeated them. But the rest of them, they enslaved. And uh, how do you explain that? Because they sold them into bondage, they enslaved them too. He's using the word, Thucydides is a very odd user of language here. He's using the word enslaved for, in other words, they, they stayed free, but they lost their ability to self-determine. They lost their self-determination as a government. And the others just turned into, you know, owned chattel slaves. So there's this intermediate stage between, between absolute, non-freedom absolute slavery and absolute freedom and and the athenians want that absolute freedom they want to be in charge of everything um and that is what their uh their speakers in the assembly seem to have convinced them was their destiny and and going back to the persian war they they're constantly reminding their citizens of the persian war look what we did we deserve our empire. We're, we're just continuing what we need to do. And Thucydides, uh, who is my special author, um, turns this into a really searching analysis of international relations as a uh, kind of a zero-sum game, where um, you don't get anywhere
0: unless you keep your own power. You think they are uh, democratic Structure or this early democratic structure of government, you think that contributed to Athens' yeah. rise in prominence? And, and many
1: people, many people in at the time and later on, including the founding fathers who read, you know, the founding fathers of the U.S. Constitution. Many people read Thucydides, who talks about most of this, who gives the most documentation of these decisions. They say, well, that's because this rabble-rousing democracy is crazy. It's bloodthirsty. And and it produces it, it rewards the politicians who promise them military victories and promise them conquest and promise them wealth, and um and that's the kind of that's the kind of government and military that you end up with when you let just everybody decide everything.
0: Yeah, uh, and I kind of I kind of led with the last question, but as you're speaking, what's rattled, what was rattling around in my my mind is it, what it sounded like Athens needed to have enough resources to begin with. So it had to be big enough, if you will, right. But then around this time, there's this adoption of a, a more um, uh, primitive form of democracy, but it gave um, a lot of people versus one person of uh, a, a voice to kind of start to, to guide how culture would get built in the civilization around. Is that a fair assessment? Correct me if, if I'm off base, but that's that was what, what was rattling around in my brain as you were sharing these um, different stories and anecdotes.
1: Right. No, that's true. And um, and for me, that's a way of explaining the paradox. Because many people would say, many people would say, Athens became a democracy and there was immediately this flowering of philosophy and poetry Mm. and drama and and all these wonderful things. And what a shame that it was all lost at the death of of Socrates at the end of the Mm. century when he was actually tried and put to death. And completely leave out the story of Athenian military Um, imperialism,
0: uh, closing, uh, question, uh, did Athens maintain its, uh, prominence for some time? And, uh, I mean, you could say it's still prominent today, obviously, but if we're talking in this, in this, uh, more ancient period, did, was Athens able to maintain its prominence and if so, why?
1: Well, they were defeated in the war, but they were not actually the first time it relied on its reputation for culture was when they were defeated in the war and the Spartans decided not to destroy the city. That's one an an ancient historian tells us that because Athens was an important place that had done many good things and they weren't talking about the military in that case. But then Athens survived and in the fourth century. There was a standoff between Athens, Sparta, and Thebes. Really, nobody had any power. At the end of the fourth century, Alexander the Great um, came down from Macedonia, and completely newcom- a newcomer to this situation, with a vast mercenary army, incredible wealth, and also very a very poor set of opponents, and conquered Greece, but was benevolent to Athens in particular, and decided that he would be the standard-bearer of Athenian culture. Mm. And so he was fortunate enough, and we don't know much. Uh, uh, the sad thing is that Alexander the Great is not well-documented, unfortunately. But we do know that he uh, defeated the Persian Empire, he conquered Egypt, he, he got as far as India with his mercenary army before he died, but he left behind his Greek, his Greek lieutenants, sub commanders as rulers in all those areas now they all of course had to assimilate to the local population they couldn't turn you know the Persian Empire Greek or the Egyptians Greek um, but they could maintain Greek culture and literature as the official high-level bureaucratic and cultural language in all these areas and so and it was Athenian literature that then culture and language that became dominant and this was the beginning of Athens cultural reputation which far survived the city and really did not depend on what was happening in Athens itself and so the Eastern Rome the Eastern Mediterranean spoke Greek and then you also spoke your other language it was a little like English today uh, except in English everybody speaks English but you don't have to study Shakespeare. You just need to speak English and get Mm -hmm. out of business. But in ancient ancient times, you had to study Euripides Mm -hmm. and you had to study Homer and you had to be able to quote these authors. And one of the most surprising, an archeological excavation in Afghanistan has discovered a verse of a gymnasium. It's called a Greek, uh, what is a Greek gymnasium with a verse of Euripides inscribed on a wall in Afghanistan, for goodness sakes and somebody was teaching this now that's not that the average population got anything of this but um it it was that extreme and that's why greece greek became athenian greek became the official language of the eastern mediterranean and under the roman empire of the eastern roman empire it remained the 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 romans did not impose latin on the areas they conquered they left them totally under local control or Mm. largely under local control culturally and so that's why for example the bible had to be translated into greek not not the new testament had to be written in greek otherwise nobody would read it and even even the hebrew bible was translated into greek in the intervening period because most jews would know greek and be able to read it that way Mm. and under the roman empire in the second century a.d the eastern mediterranean um we had a resurgence of of pride in its classical culture this is when we have plutarch and um, plutarch writing and we also have um the uh, marcus aurelius the famous roman emperor who was much more greek uh than he was latin and uh during the second century a.d was a time when um greek culture was much more dominant even in the roman west Mm -hmm. but it was after that time that the empire, the, the Mediterranean split again, and you split. On the one hand, you had the Roman culture um, in the West um, and moving up toward Europe, and and you had the Greek culture in the East, centering on Constantinople, which was still a Roman city, and and that was the time when um, Greek culture became lost. This Athenian culture became lost for a time mm. to the West. Uh, the churches were split, uh, no one knew Greek in the West. No one knew Latin in the East. And the, the Arab conquest eventually conquered Constantinople too. And the Greeks uh, survived as a, the Greeks during this period survived as a, um, uh, oh, well, Constantinople survived actually until the 15th century. So there was a small Greek center there. Um, but, um, but still, even then, Athens did not lose its influence because Athenian uh, manuscripts who had been saved in Constantinople made their way to the West in the Italian Renaissance. And that's why we have these, these copies of you know, the tragedies, the comedies, the Plato. We have Homer, of course, from earlier mm-hmm. times. We, have, we still have abundant amounts of literature from classical Athens. And these were snapped up by scholars in, uh, in Italy and served as the basis of the Renaissance. So um, it's an unusual story of Athens' cultural dominance mm. when it's military dominance, it, it, military dominance failed miserably in the end.
0: Mm. OK, Jeff. The last words with you. How would you summarize Athens' prominence during this period in terms of attributes?:
1: You'd have to say that Athens was the intellectual and political and economic capital of the aegean and maybe even of the parts of the mediterranean during this period it was the place where everything was happening in the fifth century and and it was also a place of incredible ferment um and it's a place that people had to go to to make it so if you were a philosopher you would have to go to athens and sell yourself and people did that to the athenian people um, and that in Plato's dialogues, we often have portraits of would-be philosophical stars showing up in Athens, and they don't realize that the first person they're going to have to talk to is Socrates. Mm. And, um, but Protagoras and Hippias and Parmenides and um, a, a whole bunch of people uh, came to Athens for this purpose uh so and it was also a place that was admired and incredibly influential throughout greece we have oh here's an example i mentioned afghanistan in the fourth century but already in the uh in the fifth century i there's a a face that i've studied that shows from the time of aristophanes it shows five comic actors in costume wearing fat suits and ridiculous phalluses uh, very precious evidence for the absurd costume they had in comedy at that time, and mm-hmm. this vase is about you know uh, that high, but it's beautifully drawn, and um, and it's fantastic evidence. It's found intact in the Crimean Peninsula and the Black Sea in Russia, and it, it, it was part of a luxury tomb. And the per- the people living in this place wanted their luxury goods from Athens, and those luxury goods were statuettes of figures from comedy, and and vases, uh, the beautiful Athenian vases, mm. and so Athens was the place that you you wanted to. Um, Athens was the place that you wanted to know about, and and you wanted information and goods from. They were always they were always cultural goods. Hmm. Um, on, on the economic side, Athens took its goods from elsewhere. They imported almost everything. Um, but they were a great exporter of culture.
0: That is a great uh, spot to complete the conversation. It's been delightful speaking with you today, Jeff.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. I've enjoyed it too.
0: So, again, everybody, the couple books that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Rustin wrote, he is editor of The Birth of Comedy, and he's also editor of Thucydides, The Peloponnesian War Book 2. I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the Ithacabound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Jeff and everybody listening, as always, wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast, and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.